Well, good morning. Good to see everybody here today. You made your way out at the beginning of fall. I, I think fall's here. Wouldn't you say that? And not the pretty fall, the, the messy fall. But I think, the, I think the pretty one's right around the corner. Good to see all of you here. Open up to James chapter 4, if you will, in your Bible right there near the end of your New Testament. James chapter 4. My sermon title today is called Faith in Gear. Now, let me stop there. That's the first half of the title. And, and of course, that's the name of this series. That, that's what this letter of James, I hope you see, has been about. It's taking this faith that's near and dear to our heart, taking this faith that, that we hold inside and getting it lived out, getting it fleshed out in everything we are, everything we do, everything we say, every decision we make, every relationship, our faith is being expressed. Our faith is being lived. It's being put into gear. And, and so now here's the rest of the title. Faith in gear and today grabs a hold of grace. There's, there's an interesting picture there in that title because this faith in gear kind of has this mentality, this idea of you and me working, doing something. So there's work, but it's that work of holding on to grace. Okay, it's God's grace. And, and today we're going to see really that come together uh, in this passage. You know, we, in, in the letter of James, we have people sometimes question, are, are Paul and James at odds with each other? Are Paul and James in conflict? Do they contradict? Because Paul's all about this grace. He's all about faith. And, and, and James seems to be about this work. And so we came a couple of weeks ago to a passage like James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. And we know that Paul's message is, we're saved by faith alone. And then in James 2, James seems to be saying, no, we're not. <laughs> he, he seems to make a statement that sounds just the opposite. Of course, as we took that passage on, we saw that they do not contradict to, to interpret that in context, to understand it, it's a matter of perspective. You might remember when we looked at that passage. Remember, we had a cross. Okay, I'm the cross. And, and on one side of the cross is, is Paul. And Paul is speaking out into the life of an unbeliever. As an unbeliever comes to the cross, as an unbeliever comes into a relationship with God, Paul is saying, Paul is teaching, hey, you enter a relationship with God by faith alone. It's not your work, it's not your effort, not your righteousness, not your spirituality. It is by faith alone. James, not contradicting that message, but speaking the other direction. Remember that? Paul's speaking into the life of an unbeliever. James is speaking into the life of a believer saying, where do we go from here? Okay, Paul taught you you're saved by faith alone. But faith that saves is never alone. Right? It's going to always be followed by a changed life. It's going to be followed by the, the works of God. Real faith makes a real difference. And so it's not a contradicting message. It's a very unified message speaking to all aspects of moving from outside a relationship with God into a relationship with God. So there's, there's not contradiction. There's complete unity between James and Paul. And we shouldn't be surprised by that, should we? I mean, while we talk about human authors like Moses or, or David or in the New Testament, James and Paul, let's remember there's one great author. 
And there's one great book being produced by this author, and that author is the the Holy Spirit of God. And he's completely unified in his message. Now, I I introduce all that this way to say, in today's passage, and and James is a real get faith in gear, get moving, get get working, and, and boy, it almost wears you out, doesn't it? I mean, James just comes after you and comes after you. Well, don't think you're getting a break today. I think he just, you know, he backed up and he got an extra step running at us. But right in the middle of this, man, we're going to see grace. Such a precious, awesome grace. Let's see what that looks like. You've got your Bibles open. James 4. Let me begin reading in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do, you disp- or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? I don't know how closely you were listening there, but I'm pretty sure that James just called you and me a murderer and and an adulterer. That's not very nice. (laughs) You know, I don't know if you noticed we've gone through James. This isn't exactly on three ways to feel better about yourself, is it? Not not a big self-image book. Nothing warm fuzzy about James. Not a a feel-good moment that we just went through. But you know what? It's a necessary moment. And here's why. Grace that is not needed. Grace that is not needed is spurned. And folks, we have within us the ability to spurn the very thing we don't think we need. The very thing that we need the most. You ever looked at somebody and said, I don't need your charity. Oh, maybe you just felt like they were, you know, above you and they were given to you. You didn't want to feel like you needed somebody's help. And, and you get angry. You get defensive. You, you, you almost end up trying to look down on them. I don't need your charity. Folks, we can end up carrying that same kind of attitude toward God. Grace that is not needed is spurned. And we need it. And James is pretty clear on trying to make it Uh, uh, make it clear to us how much 
that we need it. And so here he is calling the church. He's not calling the world murderers and adulterers. He's calling you and me inside the church. Uh, You know, we could take those ideas and see why the world falls into that category also. But he's not talking to the world. This isn't about those outside of Christ. This is about you and me. It's you and me that he is showing the, the horribleness, really, of our sin. Now, you, re- you remember where we left off last week. And, and, you know, you look down at your Bible there and you, you saw we began chapter 4. So in our minds, if we ended chapter 3, we've ended a topic, we've, we've ended a discussion, and now we're starting a new one. And that's kind of unfortunate that the 4 lands there like that and might communicate that to us. B- because there's not a change in topics. This is a very fluid uh, uh, flow down through this. This is one thought that James is developing. So last week we said, hey, true wisdom, living skillfully, is living for God. It's making life all about Him. And I almost imagine James here, a preacher, one day saying to the church, hey, it's all about God. And the church goes, yeah. And we're all excited. Yeah, we want to hear that. Yeah, we know that. And James says, really? Do you realize just how far you are from living for God? Do you realize how really much you are not living for Him? And that's when he starts all the the name calling. And and, and so he starts off here by by referring to our quarrels and our, our fights. Okay? We're a bunch of quarrelers, we're a bunch of fighters, and, and, and you know, you want to say, come on, come on, James, I mean, everybody a little fisticuffs every now and then, right? We all, we all don't see eye to eye all the time. Now, of course, on, on one end is somebody with a really short fuse, they're always a fighter, right? And, and on the other end, gosh, I hope everybody has somebody like this in their family, they don't ever get into a fight. You wonder if this person ever gets riled up about anything, just always very even keel. Now, most of us aren't either one of these characters, are we? Most of us are in between. But we can all get there, can't we? We, we, we can all get in, into a fight. And, and we say, well, it's because they're wrong. No, James says, here's why you fight. Because you lust. You lust after that position. You lust after that person. You lust after that power. You lust after that revenge. You lust after that opportunity. You lust after that thing. You want this. You want what somebody else has. And you, and you start to get angry. And you start to hate. And there's this selfish ambition. There's this bitter jealousy in you. Remember what we saw last week? James chapter 3 verse 14. Now, we don't refer to ourselves as bitterly jealous, do we? We don't say, man, I really struggle with just super selfish ambition. No, but folks, those words just simply represent a life being lived for self. And we all do struggle with that. Living for ourselves. And when we're living for ourselves, we are going to collide with others. From the one we love to the most down to the stranger. From a friend to an enemy. We're going to collide with others. Here's the funny thing. When you're living for God, people are your best opportunity to do that. Think about it, folks. Think about everything you know in the Scripture. Think about what your faith is. Where do you live your faith? You live it out in relationships. Again, from the one you love the most down to the enemy. To the friend, to the stranger. Life in Christ is lived out. It's expressed in relationships. Now, here's the hard part. That means that sometimes our most difficult relationships 
are our best opportunity to really live for him. Our best opportunity to be like Jesus. So when life is all about God, people are a great way to live for God. But when life is about me, people aren't a great way to live for God. They're just in the way. And so we want what they want. We want what that they have. And we get, we get that anger. We get that jealousy going. And you know, we can even start getting angry at God. I mean, why not? We believe he's got everything. He's in control of everything. Hey, Lord, I've obeyed the rules. I went to church. You said to pray. I prayed. I prayed. I asked you. You said pray and ask in Jesus' name and you'll answer. And I, and I did that and I, and I don't have it. And so now I'm angry at God. Now, now look at where, where James goes in verse 3. It's almost like he's just flying into the face of all of our wonderful promises about prayer. But James is, is challenging you and me, saying to you and me, Hey, listen, just because you have a sentence that begins with dear Lord and ends with amen doesn't mean everything going on in between that's okay. Man, really, do we think we're going to carry our covetousness, our anger into prayer and God's going to jump? Do we think we're going to back God into a corner, folks? We're going to back God into a corner. We're going to show him, over here, you were negligent. Over here, you didn't show up. You said you were going to do this and you didn't do this. Over here, I'm not even sure you were right. And, And now, by the way, Lord, that I've shown you where you missed it, you owe me. You know, it sounds funny saying that, doesn't it? Folks, it's it's a very common feeling in us. God, you owe me. You're obligated. Really? God owes us something. Folks, God has given us His Son, Jesus Christ. The greatest possession, the greatest treasure that is Him. He's given Jesus, and and Jesus was not given just as a neat gift, as a really special gift, as a really valuable gift. It was a gift given in concert with our greatest need, our greatest failure, our greatest inability. The gift solves my problem. The gift gives me an opportunity to be loved, to be forgiven, to, to have eternal life. Folks, should that not be enough? Should that one gift, if if I never see or hear of God again after the giving of that gift, should I not have reason now to be overwhelmingly grateful every day for the rest of my life and on into eternity? You know, I think a lot of us would say, yeah, yeah, we should. Yeah, that is, man, I should be grateful forever. And and we understand that idea. We we agree with that idea. But if we're being honest, we, we do expect something else after salvation, don't we? Prayed to receive Christ when we were nine years old. We didn't expect to never hear from God again after that. It came into a relationship with God when we were 31. We anticipated there'd be some some other help from God. Some other blessings from God. And sometimes we see those because he always does. He doesn't stop at Christ. He continues to bless and to give over and over. Sometimes we see it and acknowledge it. Sometimes we, we don't see and acknowledge everything he's doing. Man, what a blessing to enjoy a good meal. You say, oh, what? I got you on that one, Pastor. I say thank you before every meal. Yeah, so do I. Do you mean it? Well, well of course I mean it. No, no, I mean, were you even thinking about what you were saying? <laughs> Mostly. 
man, we can do that so perfunctory, so rote. We're just, you know, rub-a-dub-dub, three-minute tub. Yay, God, bring on the grub. You know, don't even know what's coming out of our mouth sometimes. You know, it's a blessing to enjoy the warm sun on your face and the cool sand in your toes. It's a blessing to enjoy love. How about this? Do you ever think of this as a blessing? You and I have been afforded an opportunity, not, not by my spirituality, not by my goodness, not by my strength and wisdom. Have I been given an opportunity, have I been given a way to live that will result in eternal rewards? That will result in a life that counts forever. That's not my doing. That's a gift of God. Do we consider that as one of his great blessings? Man, folks, we have more than enough to be grateful for. And no reason at all to stand before God demanding. But you know what? Our our gratefulness for God's goodness can get consumed by our lust. By our want. For the things of this world, for for people, for situations, for opportunities. And that that, that want becomes a a, a lust, becomes really a hate. A hate for God, a hate for the situation, a hate for that that person. And no doubt James here remembers his, his brother Jesus teaching one time that, man, when you got hate in your heart, that's the same as murder. I don't like being called a murderer. Most of us aren't going to like that. Most of us are going to feel like that's just an unfair title. And so we're kind of gearing up right now, right, to explain to James why we're not a murderer. And before we can even get the first word out, he says, oh, yeah, you're an adulterer too. Holy cow, James, give me a break. I tell you what, going through this book, I don't know if y'all feel like this message after message. I feel like James is holding me underwater. And I want to say, there's no bubbles. Let me up right give us a break and boy no break here he calls you a murderer and now he comes with an adulterer and when he calls you that when he calls me that it's not a, it's not a, a a reference to a sexual indiscretion on our part this is about being a promise breaker being unfaithful to a promise right because you if, if you're unfaithful to a promise that's that's what you are I stood with Karen on December 19th, 1987, and and I made a promise. Made a promise that I was going to hold her hand, only her hand, for the rest of life, for the next like 50, 60 something years if the Lord allows. Man, that's crazy when you think about it, isn't it? There we are, 22 years old, don't know nothing about nothing. Making all these promises about the rest of life like we even know what we're talking about. That's just crazy. I like the way uh, Gary Chapman describes love. He says, love is two consonants, L and V, two vowels, O and E, two fools, U and me. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty much it. There we are, man. We're going to promise this. But you know what? God hears that promise. God cares about that promise. And you break that promise, you're you're an adulterer. But right here in this passage, he's not talking about a situation or an issue with with me and my, my mate. He's talking about our relationship with him. 
Like I said, you and I, we come to Christ. Maybe we're nine, maybe we're 17, maybe we're, we're 31, but we come to Christ. And in that moment, we pledge to Jesus our, our loyalty. We pledge to Him our affections. He's going to be the center of our lives, right? The, the center of our affections. And then we slide right back and put ourselves back in the place of being the center of our affections. We slide right back to a, a love for the world and a, and a desire for the world and the world's pleasures and the, and the world's ways. And, and we slide back to becoming friends with the world. You know, this idea here uh, of James, that to be friends with the world is in, enmity toward, toward God. James says that, Paul says that. It's in a couple of places throughout the Bible. I don't think I ever really got that until just now, until I was working this week on this passage because it was in this relationship of adultery, of, of faithfulness. And all of a sudden I realized what God was saying. Here I've come into this relationship with God. He, he's my affection. He's my love. And then all of a sudden I'm back in the world and I'm wanting to make friends with them. Because the, what the world and the way of the world will profit me. The, the world and the way of the world will give me pleasure. And so I'm trying to befriend them again. Do you realize I'm befriending someone, something that hates God? The, the world is an enemy of God. The world is in rebellion to God. The world, the devil, sin, wants to destroy the kingdom of God. And I go over and be, say, hey, you want to be friends? Want to hang out? C can you imagine... You've got a mate. You've got a boyfriend and a girlfriend or a girlfriend. Can you imagine that love of your life going over and befriending your worst enemy? Not just somebody that doesn't like you, somebody that hates you, somebody that constantly is running you down and talking back. How would you feel? What would that do for you? And that's what we're doing. We're sliding over and befriending again the world. And so in this language of love and betrayal, the word jealousy is thrown out there. It's a little bit of a confusing line. It's, it's here. It's in a couple of places in the Old Testament. This idea of God being jealous. Some people find that confusing, maybe even contradictory. Hey, here, here's the place where, here's one of these places where the Bible made a mistake. Because the Bible says that jealousy is a sin, and then it says God is jealous. Well, so is God guilty of sin there? We forget something, folks. That God can express any emotion, any range of emotions, and does so without sin. That's not true for you and me. Our emotions can often lead us into sin. So that's why God says, man, you need to be super careful with anger. Just completely slow down because it often becomes sin. But God can show anger and it never leads to sin. He perfectly expresses that anger. Righteously, justly expresses that anger. That's never a situation with me. Same with jealousy. Why, why, why do I, why do you get jealous? Because we're insecure, because we're fearful, because someone, something has something we want that we don't have. None of that's true for God. God has all power and authority. There's nothing out there making him afraid. There's nothing out there making him insecure. All of his plans are going to come to fruition. Nothing is going to stop him or what he has planned. It's not about God seeing something he doesn't have. He owns everything, literally everything. He owns you, and he owns all the stuff you thought you owned. You act like you owned. Uh-uh. It's all his. Well, then, then what's the jealousy? What's he jealous about? For his glory. 
That his glory is guarded, that his glory is held rightly, that his glory is seen. Now folks, understand it like this. Okay, his glory, that's who he is, that's what he is. Do you remember what we said last week? That God is not being self-centered. God is doing us a favor when he tells you and me to praise him. When he tells us to put him at the center of our affections. Why is that a favor? Because I have this horrible tendency to put at the center of my affections things that break. Things that die. Things that are wrong. Things that will lead to emptiness. A person, an idea, a thing. We'll put that there. And God says, hey, don't put that stuff there. Put me there. I'm eternal. I'm good. I'm right. I'm perfect. Center your affection in life on that. Thank you, God, because I really don't pick the right thing. See, that's a favor. And he guards that opportunity for you and I to enjoy who and what he is. And then we slide back into the shame of our sin. We slide back and try to develop an old friendship, an old love for the way of the world. What, what should God feel in that moment? So here, here we are, a, a murderous, adulterous lot, horrible really. We pray by our lust, we live for our pleasures and ourselves. I mean really, this is kind of, isn't this just kind of where the sky ought to open up and strike us all with lightning? But look at verse 6. And see five of maybe the most precious words in all the Bible. But he gives more grace. God has more grace than I have murder and adultery. God has more grace for me than I have love for this world. To my unfaithfulness, he shows himself faithful. To my meanness, he shows himself kind. To my bitterness and my unforgiveness, he shows himself loving and patient and gentle. To my self-centeredness, to my self-absorbedness, he shows himself sacrificial. Giving the ultimate sacrifice of himself for me and my well-being. God has more grace than I have sin. So the question becomes, how do I respond to that? I think James' fear and concern, my fear and concern as I look at myself and as I've looked at so many, is that you and I have the ability to look at that grace and only leave with this thought. So I'm still forgiven, right? So I, I mean, I, I can go ahead and lie here. I know it's wrong, but I can lie here. But I'm still forgiven. So I, I can be sexually immoral here. Live outside of the bounds of one man, one woman, inside the commitment of marriage. There and only there is the sex life to be expressed. But I can do something different than, but I'm still forgiven though, Right? I can rob God, his words, not mine. I can rob God week in and week out. But I can still ask for his blessing on my finances and still ask for his blessing on my work. I can rob him, but I'm still forgiven, right? 
Is that how we use grace? Is that how we use his forgiveness? Listen, forgiveness is a rescue from sin. Not a way to sin. Can I say that again? Forgiveness is a rescue from sin. Not a way to continue sinning with insurance. If we're looking at God's grace as a way to just keep on living like we always live, then we don't have His grace. That's not a grace that covers. And here's why. Because we've mocked it. We've rejected it. We've spurned it. I don't need it. I just needed some insurance to keep doing what I wanted. That's not grace. But when grace is our one great treasure... When grace is the prize we hold, when grace is what we're trusting, then that grace covers anything and everything that I'm not before God. So what does it mean to trust that grace? What does it mean to to grab a hold of it? I think what we see in the rest of the verses 7 through 12 is five ideas. And I'll try to mention them quickly. Five ways that you and I grab a hold of grace. Number one, we humble ourselves before God, right? It's grace. It's God's grace. It's not me. It's not what I'm owed. It's not what I deserve. I'll never stand here before God again demanding and acting like he's obliged. He owes me. We're we're humble before God. Because all we have is His grace. That, That humility also means we'll submit to His plan. His plan that was given in grace. His plan that was born in love. I submit to it humbly. And so if God wants to use me and my life to advance His agenda and His glory. If He wants to use, say, my success... My strength and my well-being to advance his kingdom and glory. Then then amen, so be it. But if he wants to use my failure. My weakness. If basically he wants to give my life over to suffering. Because that's what will advance his glory and kingdom. Then so be it. We humble ourselves before God. We we draw close to God, right? Because grace is not a person. God is a person who gives grace. We draw close to the source of our grace. We do that through the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit guides our prayers. The Holy Spirit guides us in obedience. It's the Holy Spirit we pray. The Holy Spirit we depend upon. Take me close to God. And and we use not only the Holy Spirit of God, but the Word of God. The Word of God is kind of like a tuner on your radio. Okay, The the Word of God helps me know how the Holy Spirit speaks. So that I know who and what I'm listening to. Because the world's out there speaking. There's a lot of static actually. So I need the word of God to know what God's voice really sounds like. And I need the people of God. I I doubt many of us in here really think I need the people of God to grow in my relationship with God. Yes, because the scripture doesn't show anywhere any idea of a thriving, growing relationship with God. That's a solo journey. We do it together. It's together we know Him, together we serve Him, together we serve His kingdom and advance His kingdom. It's together. Folks, draw close to God. This is action. 
This is a command on your life and my life. This is a verb. Do this action day in and day out. Have a discipline in your life where you are drawing close to God through the Holy Spirit of God, by the Word of God, with the people of God. And as you're doing that, if you're going to be drawing close to Him at the same time, you're going to be resisting the devil. What's resist mean? That means to fight, right? Fight back. Somebody comes up and tries to take something and you resist. What are you doing? You're, you're holding on. You're pushing back. You're, you're fighting. We are to fight the devil, the world, and its ways. We're to fight the sin in our lives. I wonder, though, if sometimes we want to fight sin without actually fighting. I want to get sin out of my life, but not too far. Because <laughs> that sin can be the source of my my pleasure and my profit. So I want, it, I want it out of my life, but if I need it, it's there. No, folks, where to fight? Well, I just can't. Yes, you can. Yes, you absolutely can. Quit lying to yourself. Quit listening to the lie of the devil that you can't fight your sin. Fight. There's a command right there. God does not command the impossible. Nowhere does he tell you to jump to the moon. But he does tell you to resist the devil, to fight your sin, get bloodied, get tired getting in bed at night because you fought your sin all day long. I know that sounds a little bit like a different message, right? Because we've been taught that the victory's in Christ. We're to rely on Christ. We're to trust in Jesus. He's the way. Yes, he is. We're not changing that message at all. Holding on to Christ, holding on to that victory, we fight. We don't become wet noodles to the glory of God. We fight. We take our sin serious. Take it on with great seriousness. You may say, well, what's the difference between number three and four? Well, I could probably write it this way. Take on your sin with great seriousness by fighting in number three. And number four, take on your sin with great seriousness by grieving. Look at verses eight and ten. Look down at your Bible. These are not happy, feel-good verses, are they? My goodness gracious. If you came in here this morning feeling pretty good, stop it. If you came in here with a smile on your face, stop it. I mean, doesn't that sound very different from what we normally kind of expect to hear, what we normally look to? You know, folks, we've become so committed to something that's true, but I think we can get out of balance We've become so committed to feeling affirmed. So committed to feeling okay. I want to feel good. You know what James is saying right here? Hey, listen, if you're taking it in the face with sin, if you're losing to sin, you shouldn't feel good. If you're giving in to sin, if you're not resisting, if you're not fighting, you don't need to be affirmed. You need to weep, you need to grieve. You need to hate the sin in your life. God hates the sin in your life. Why are you walking around with a big smile saying, but I feel good about myself? Well, stop feeling good about yourself. Hate your sin. Do you know why God hates your sin? Because He loves you. God hates sin because He loves you. See, you and I love our sin because it profits us. It gives us pleasure. He hates it because he knows it's lying about the profit and the pleasure. And that ultimately sin takes us to the place where it can steal from us, kill us, and destroy us. 
That's the purpose of every single sin, to destroy you. God loves you too much to watch you and I be in love with that which is going to destroy us. Folks, we are a people of the good news, and that really does put a smile on our face. Uh, We're a people of good news, and that's what we're to be sharing you know what? When we're not doing well with sin, we're not handling our sin, that's not a time for a smile and that's not a time to feel affirmed. That's a time to weep. It's, it's a time to grieve. The last thing, now, you know, the, the, these first four things, very personal in nature. This last thing's kind of interesting. Leave people alone. What does that have to do with these first four things? You know, this is kind of an interesting idea. Look there, verses 11 and 12. Because, folks, there's a lot in the New Testament that talks about what we're to do for one another. We're to encourage each other. We're to help each other. We're to confront one another. You know what? Thank God if you've got a friend in your life. And you know what? Very few of us do. Have a friend in our lives who will say, that's sin. You know why we don't do that for each other in the church anymore? Because we're too busy affirming each other and telling each other everything's okay and we're all okay and nothing's really sin anymore. You need a friend who will say, that's sin. And that's not what James is talking about right here. He's talking about a friend who comes in love and comes in humility and comes with a desire to help you when he or she says, hey man, that's sin. Now, while we don't do this for each other very much, each other anymore, you know what we do do? We point out sin a whole bunch in others, but not because they're our friends. It's somebody we don't like. Hey, do you see the sin in them? Man, we should together not like them together. Hey, we together now can run them down. And and that's what James is saying right here. He's saying, really? Are you not sufficiently overwhelmed enough with your own sin that you need to be all up about the business of somebody else's? Are you not sufficiently overwhelmed with the challenge in your own life to draw close to God and resist the devil that you're trying to measure what somebody else is doing? Stop it! God knows where they are. He knows what they're doing. He knows if they're wrong and he knows how to handle it. If he needs your help, he'll come get you and I wouldn't be waiting. I was listening to a sermon this week on, uh, on James, as a matter of fact. I, I got, a, I got a number, several pastors I like to listen to a, a lot that, that minister to me. One is a guy named Matt Chandler uh, out of Dallas, Texas. And he actually was preaching on James uh, this past spring. And so I was listening to some of his messages. And he made this comment. And if you've been, if you've been here most of the time since July, you've heard a lot of these messages. I think you'll understand this. He made this comment. He said, James without the cross is crushing. That makes sense? Man, he is showing us what the Christian life is and how far we are from it. And he doesn't let up. He doesn't ever say, no, it's okay, you're doing your best. We all love God and we all love each other. No, he doesn't ever let up. It's crushing to see what you and I are being called to and how far we fall short. James, without the cross, is crushing. But there is a cross, isn't there? Right there. 
but he gives more grace. As you learn about what it looks like to really have faith, and we really have in America come to a faith where we say that we have faith and it means almost nothing. It changes almost nothing. There's hardly any difference between us and the world. And so when you see what faith is and how it's to be lived and how it's to be expressed and the change that it's to be made in our lives, man, doesn't it make you grateful that there is grace? Are you glad for grace? Because you know, really, here's the entire message of James right here. If you're glad for grace, all James is saying... Live like it. That's the message of James. You glad for grace? Live like it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us to live like it? In our marriage in our finances, with our good friends and with the not-so-good ones. In that decision we need to make, in that job we don't like. God, in that place where we can't see that you're moving and working in our lives. God, help us then right there to live like we're so grateful for your grace. And we do need your help. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.